Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In 1976, Peter Piot was a 27-year-old microbiologist working in Belgium when he traveled to the Democratic Republic of Congo, then called Zaire, to investigate a particularly deadly disease outbreak. He took samples back to his lab and was among the team that first discovered the Ebola virus. Today, he is one of the world's leading experts on epidemics and infectious disease. This includes HIV-AIDS. In 1995, he was the founding director of the United Nations Program on AIDS, called UNAIDS, and served in that role until 2008. He is now the director of one of the world's most prestigious health research institutes, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And on the podcast today, we talk about epidemics and what can be done to avert and contain them. This includes the ongoing Ebola epidemic in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is now the second worst Ebola outbreak in history. We also discuss what the world has gotten right and gotten wrong about both fighting HIV and AIDS and how we might need to redefine what we mean by ending the AIDS epidemic. We kick off, though, discussing the kind of nightmare scenarios that most concerned Peter Piot. This includes what he calls the big one. This is a great conversation with a true legend of global health, and I am so extremely pleased that today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Peter Piot. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. One thing is certain, I think, and that is that um, 100 years ago, we had the Spanish flu, uh, which killed between 50 and 100 million people when there were only 1.5 billion people on this planet. And one day we'll have something similar, uh, similar in the sense that we'll have a, an influenza virus that is completely different from the viruses that we've been exposed to and uh, against which we have uh, zero immunity and protection, and um, and since that's airborne, so that will happen. It will, it will be produced in nature in 
maybe in poultry or in some birds or in pigs or whatever, so in animals. And when that uh, hits uh, humans, um, then uh, and it's airborne, then we can uh, go for another um, real catastrophic type of uh, epidemic. And um, so when will it happen? We don't know. It's like, I would say, I was just in California, and we say this, there's about the big one. The big one is the one's the big earthquake. Um, it can happen tomorrow. It can happen in 100 years. And it's a bit similar for the um, this new type of pandemic flu. And that's, um, you know, that's the number one. The second one is a bit uh, maybe uh, going into um, slightly science fiction, but um, I've been thinking a lot about that. And that is that, okay, with climate change, uh, we are going to see the permafrost and uh, be, uh, you know, defreezing. And uh, that could liberate uh, some um, microbes uh, that are either entirely new, against which we have no protection, or, um, you know, pathogens that could also uh, create a uh, kind of uh, an out-of-control epidemic. And then there is always the unknown, what's called, an, you know, pathogen X but so these are some of the, uh, I think, scenarios that are not unreal. Um, and I'm not a doom thinker or a pessimist, but uh, we need to be prepared for it. And it's particularly anything that is um, airborne. But let's not forget that at the end of um, the last century, um, what popped up as what is now the biggest epidemic of our time, and that's HIV, a classic sexually transmitted agent that now cumulatively has already infected well over 70 million people and, and killed over 35 million people. We don't think about it that way, but that was completely new. Hmm. That's not airborne, fortunately. And, uh, it, and it's because it's sex, transmitted through sex, you know, it's a, uh, underground, and it, uh, but it's, it illustrates uh, how human behavior is uh, really the carrier of, uh, uh, of, of pathogens. So I, I do want to speak with you about HIV in a little bit, but it's, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by your response to that sort of kind of doomsday question that I've asked other public health experts in the past, and they do always cite that sort of rep, the, the influenza scenario. But it's yeah. interesting. You're, the, I think, the first microbiologist I've spoken to and, and described a permafrost uh, scenario of a microbe yeah. being released in, into the atmosphere. I, I mean, how plausible is that to you? Well, I think that um, there are already signs that um, um, from permafrost, have, we've had an outbreak of anthrax so, um, in, uh, I think, in Siberia. So that was from a, um, um, a cadaver of an animal that was carrying that and was frozen. Um, I, I think it will happen, but uh, whether this will be more of local importance, like local outbreak or will give rise to a, a big epidemic. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's highly unpredictable. So it seems like the, the unpredictability of both the timing of like, say, when the big one will happen or this kind of permafrost scenario, you know, suggests to me, at least that, you know, the world needs to sort of race to prepare itself to confront these sort of scenarios. How prepared are we and, and sort of what does, you know, global, you know, epidemic preparedness look like today to you? Well, certainly compared to 100 years ago when we had the Spanish flu, uh, we are much better prepared. There's no doubt about it. We've got better tools. 
um, you know, we can now diagnose a, um, a viral infection in an hour or two. Um, before that would take uh, sometimes weeks. Um, we have so better diagnostics. We also have antibiotics, even if there can be a problem of resistance but, uh, to, against these antibiotics. But um, it's uh, what many people during a, an influenza uh, outbreak die actually from pneumonia. So that can be treated by uh, antibiotics. Um, we've got some vaccines, certainly. Uh, they're not perfect, but uh, for influenza, we've got vaccine. Um, we've got um, even a vaccine against Ebola now, two vaccines. So we're better prepared. But on the other hand, um, we are hugely mobile. Millions of people take a flight every day. Um, and what in the old days, if you, uh, you know, you get infected in, let's say, Hong Kong with some new strain, you had to take the boat and it took a few weeks before your um let's say in London, where I'm now, um, today that's just an overnight flight. Um, and so highly densely populated, um, I think also with global warming, we've got more and more mosquitoes that were, uh, you know, uh, can multiply um, what used to be climate, uh, um, you know, temperate climate zones. Um, so that's all, um, you know, on the negative side. And, um I think there was a report that um, was just published from the, the Global uh, Pandemic Preparedness Monitoring Group, I think it's called, with the World Bank and the World Health Organization. And their point was that the world is not prepared, is not prepared enough for a, uh, you know, a massive outbreak. And I think we need to distinguish between two things. One, the, we cannot prevent um, uh, outbreaks to happen because the origin are uh, viruses, pathogens coming from animals. These are so-called zoonoses. And so we can't pre uh, prevent the first case of Ebola, let's say, because the people are infected from a virus that comes from bats. Um, what we can prevent is um, from an outbreak to become a large epidemic. Um, so that's the first thing that we, what we uh, can do. And that's where early diagnosis and being prepared on the ground is so important. And we often talk about, you know, international teams, the global response, but what's most important is the local response and local preparedness. But in 2014, it took more than three months to find out that uh, what was going on in West Africa was an Ebola outbreak um, because there's no infrastructure, no laboratories, and, and in any case, nobody was looking for Ebola in West Africa because we thought that it was only happening in Central Africa. So that local preparedness, I think, is, is really uh, this for my number one um, concern for um, this preventing a local outbreak to become bigger and bigger. On this question of local preparedness, what does that look like to you? What's involved with that? I mean, is it a matter of, say, training frontline health workers or scaling up national laboratories? What are elements of the kind of local preparedness that you see could be a useful tool in preventing or halting epidemics? Yeah, I think that the first place it is to have systems and infrastructure for what we call epidemic surveillance and uh, where there are laboratories and the people who collect the data and who can detect when something abnormal, something risky appears. And that's 
uh, a combination of people, skilled people who do that and who uh, and who know what's going on in the community, who collect the data, who collect biological samples for testing, um, and where that can be analyzed and so on. And so, and that's something that, uh, like in the U.S., you have the Center for Disease Control, and every state has that. Um, it's the same in the U.K. and uh, South Africa has that, but many of the um, most vulnerable countries, particularly in Africa, don't have such a system. And it's really, when you look at health budgets, it all goes to hospitals and health care and rarely to this kind of, uh, uh, you know, supporting that system and infrastructure. That's the first thing. And then secondly, is very good communication. You know, people need to know. And that's an advantage of today where we can, we have so much better communication means, but they can also turn against uh, epidemic preparedness by spreading false rumors and uh, fake news and so on. So, but that can be managed. Um, so that local preparedness um, is really important and it costs money. But it's like, you know, what we do today is that we wait until there's an epidemic and there's a bowl and so on. And then, okay, we, we put in all the resources and so on. It's as if we only set up the uh, no, uh, uh, fire brigade when a house is on fire. No, we need that preparedness um, and, and working on that when there is no uh, outbreak, no epidemic, um, and, and that costs money. So it's, it's a matter of investment um, that we need. And then secondly, another issue is that, um, for example, uh, to prepare for um, a, a respiratory uh, type of uh, virus like influenza, it's preparing health services, uh, hospitals, through exercises like a fire drill. Um, what if suddenly, uh, you know, the number of patients who knock at the door of the emergency room or in the, uh, the hospital, pneumonia and so on, if that multiplies by 10 or so, um, how are we going to cope that? And that includes also, of course, healthcare workers who themselves will be affected. Uh, so that going through that kind of... Um, preparedness drills is is uh, equally important um on uh, ebola which you mentioned earlier you know we're we're speaking in the midst uh, it's now over 2 years of this outbreak in the eastern part of the democratic republic of of congo um is this current outbreak teaching you anything about ebola the virus or how effective response could be mounted that you didn't already know well, I, in theory, we knew it all, but in practice, uh, what um, the, the outbreak in the DRC, the Ebola outbreak, is showing again is that um, you don't operate in a in a vacuum uh, when you are dealing with epidemics. Um, it's the on the one hand the um, insecurity situation with armed conflict and so on, and that's one thing uh, with lack of trust in government. Um, and um, and community mistrust that is actually uh, very um, easy to understand as far as I'm concerned. So it's not just about Ebola, but it's a lot about other things. And um, I think the um, the mistake initially was perhaps that we had not in we uh, collectively not uh, listened it carefully enough and not worked with the with communities. Um, what people were thinking um, from the from day one, and that was one of the big lessons from the 
the largest Ebola outbreak in, in history in, in West Africa. Um, so that, I think, is a, a big issue. It, dealing with epidemics is not just a, a technical issue. Okay, we've got a vaccine, but if people um, are not are dying in the community, are hiding, or are not, you know, the, the, you can't reach certain parts of a community because of security issues, you can't vaccinate them. So the vaccine won't work if you don't give it. Um, so, and also when people... Uh, feel that they've been neglected in terms of their health needs for, well, for generations, basically, in the, in the case of Eastern Congo. Um, and they suddenly ask, why is all this money coming just for one disease? Um, you know, so we, we need to um, have a more comprehensive approach. But the good news is that, for example, um, today we do have two vaccines that can be used to... Um, protect you from Ebola, which we didn't have before. So there is progress. And also there are far more people who with that experience who can, uh, uh, who know how to, um, to manage uh, such an epidemic. I guess what's, what's sort of interesting and sort of disturbing to me is that, you know, you mentioned experience. I mean, DRC has experience and, you know, fairly sophisticated ways of, of confronting Ebola uh, yet this uh, outbreak seems so stubborn. You know, the, the World Health Organization and international organizations now have these new tools at their disposal and reforms of the WHO following the, the West Africa outbreak. Yet we still have this enduring uh, Ebola outbreak, and there seems to be like no end in sight at this point. Yeah, the current Ebola outbreak in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo has been going on for now 15 months at least. And um, uh, whereas the number of cases, few cases, as uh, you know, is going down, is fewer than before, but still like two, three a day, which under normal circumstances is a is a reason for being extremely worried. And here we say, oh, it's only two, three a day. Um, so, and it is moving to some other uh, areas. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and in the, with community deaths, which means that there are, um, you know, this transmission going on in the community. So, and the reason I think for that is, as, it's not a technical one, um, because the vaccines are being there and there's, there's a real deployment of lots of um, uh, contact tracers and treatment centers. Uh, from from the national side, uh, the National uh, Institute for Biomedical Research, from um, Dr. Swilad Bordes, from World Health Organization, the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, we're all there. But it's about much more. And um, I, I think that we've also been extraordinarily lucky that this has not spread into one of the big towns, from Goma to Kisangani, even Kinshasa, um, because one person who moves and who is not, uh, let's say, treated and isolated uh, in, in going in a, in a big city can really give rise to a, a very serious epidemic. So we have to, yeah, we have to intensify our efforts. But at the same time, um, we're now trying also as a, a national and international actors there to provide some decent um, health care for other problems because people are dying from malaria. Kids are dying from measles because vaccination is not going on. So you can't look at just Ebola, Ebola and, and say, okay, the rest is not my problem. 
how, how long do you expect this outbreak to, to go on for? Oh, well, that's I... Uh, <laughs> if there's anyone we, to ask, it would be you, sir. <laughs> well, you know, in February, when the, the, we thought and WHO said, oh, that's uh, nearing the end and because uh, the number of cases are going down. And so we've been there before. I frankly think it can still go on at uh, this um, relatively lower level for several months. Um, and uh, But I... I, I, th- I think the lesson that I've learned is that to not make predictions because it can, there can be a resurgence and so on. So, but we have to, we, we should not um, be complacent and think that, okay, we're nearly there. No, that's not going to happen. Um, so I, I'm glad that earlier you brought up HIV AIDS. What do you currently see as the trajectory of the disease? And do you think that that 2030 target of ending the epidemic is, is feasible? Well, there are um, these UN goals of 2030, elimination of uh, or ending its epidemic, um, regardless how we define it. And then there are uh, for 2020, in other words, in a few months from now, there are goals, um, you know, to reduce the number of new cases to a certain level and uh, so on. And it's very clear today that there's no way that we're going to reach the 2020 interim goal um, and that we um, and that should be seen in a, in a context of a few points one we've made extraordinary progress against HIV um, from the mortality the number of people who died has been half, less than halved from two million and now it's about uh, seven hundred thousand per year but that's still a lot of people uh, the number of new infections has come down also. But it's still like 1.7, 1.8 million uh, every single year. Um, so we are far from uh, the end of AIDS, and I think that we need to uh, to redefine uh, what we mean by it and be a bit more realistic. I, I suspect, or no, I expect that some countries will do very well, and uh, they're really on the way to um, very low levels of new infections and. Uh, low levels of mortality from um, from HIV. But then a neighboring country can be in trouble. And you can even see that in, the, let's say, in the U.S. I was uh, um, last week in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, in among white gay men, there's a very low um, incidence of new infections of HIV. You cross the Bay, you go to Oakland, and you have a, an epidemic that's quite out of control, particularly in African-Americans, um, both gay men and uh, in heterosexuals. Um, and uh, uh, so that illustrates the, dramatically, I think, uh, what is going on in the rest of the world. And when you, you, you are in KwaZulu-Natal, for example, in, uh, uh, in South Africa, um, the, where our school is uh, working a lot with uh, uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and, um, well, the, as a young woman, your risk of becoming infected with HIV today is still four to seven percent per year. Can you imagine? That means by the time you're 40, you know, nearly half of the women are, uh, are HIV positive. So we still have a long way to go. Good news is that the Global Fund fight AIDS, TB, malaria. They had a very successful uh, replenishment round. And um, that is something that uh, is, is essential because without money, 
there is no way that um, you can, um, you know, you, you, you can fight this. It's, uh, um, and we need to assure um, that there is, uh, you know, people remain under, under therapy. But also, it is um, not just a therapy treatment that's going to do it. Because of this rhetoric about the end of AIDS, mm -hmm. I think some people may think, oh, it's done. And there's quite some complacency. Also, thanks, it's a well, well, can, price can, can I, per can, sex. Yeah, well, go well, ahead. Well, well, may I ask? I mean, earlier you said we need to redefine what we mean by ending the yes. epidemic. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's clear that eliminating HIV just because that's the end of, of it, I don't think that's um, not going to be possible. Um, only smallpox uh, has been eradicated um, uh, as a human infection. Polio, we are close, but we are not there yet. And I think there will be a few other um, like so-called uh, neglected tropical diseases that may we may be close to eliminate and trachoma in many countries is uh, you know out of the world so that is uh, it, it is possible but with hiv where we have sexual transmission where we have a a chronic infection there's no cure um, the treatment is not a cure so i i think it's unlikely so we have to set some goals i think for each country uh, global goals for this is for me, it's pretty meaningless for uh, when you are living in wherever, you know, whether you're living in the UK or in Malawi or, uh, you know, or in Zimbabwe. Um, and so each country should define uh, and set very uh, ambitious targets and working towards that and how to do it. Um, and that is going to be very important because the how you do it is going to be a quite important um, for the... Um, um, you know, in order if we want to have results, so that will be, uh, um, yeah, the way to go, I think. And and one country that is, for example, that is doing quite well um, is um, is Kenya, where uh, which is now a very decentralized country where each county has kind of it's their own policy and budget, but the national AIDS program um, has designed tailor-made programs for each county in function of uh, where the epidemic is and uh, for example in some it's more um, you know more generalized epidemic with um, lots of uh, young people and women and others are um, for more where you can have you know uh, where commercial sex or um, where men of sex with men uh, may be more affected so that's what we have to do but it's it's not over, and uh, we all we can do is to redouble efforts, but pay more attention to prevention and not just um, all this uh, attention for treatment. Uh, okay. Well, lastly, uh, is there any new research coming from your school that you'd want to plug that you think listeners should be looking out for? Uh, we're, I think, in terms of HIV. Uh, the, there's very important research on um, developing an HIV vaccine because that's what we will need to really end this epidemic. And, um, and there, you know, it's been very disappointing. Many attempts have been made and uh, um, it hasn't worked. But now uh, I'm more encouraged that uh, this is not coming from our school, but that there are um, uh, studies going on with vaccines that 
may show results. But we've learned in the past the hard way that it's not because it, it, it works in non-human primates that it works also in, uh, um, you know, in, in people. You know? Now, the other uh, thing is that we need to understand much better the, uh, the dynamics. Why are people, why are young women in, uh, for example, in KwaZulu-Natal, as I mentioned, still infected? You know, at this high rate, what's going on? Understand these dynamics, because that's what we need to have effective interventions. But on the other hand, it's also policy. I mean, it's in the countries of the former Soviet Union where you still see an increase in new infections. And that is a policy issue because the governments don't want to deal with it or are just having discriminatory practices or a police approach to um, to HIV because they're homophobic or they, you know, it's about drug users and so on. So that's not a scientific issue. That is a, um, you know, a, a policy issue. And then going back to epidemics, um, uh, it was announced today that um, a second Ebola vaccine, so the, the Merck vaccine has been deployed as, uh, in ring vaccination in, in DRC and with over 200,000 people vaccinated. Um, today is announced that um, we, as a coalition with the Congolese authorities, uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, Innovation, and our London School Hygiene Tropical Medicine, we are um, starting to deploy the second vaccine in, um, you know, in areas at risk in DRC. So that's a, um, again, it's a tool we did not have um, even last year. Well, Dr. Piat, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Peter Piat. That was great. And if you are a new listener to the show, welcome. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our robust archives. Global health is a topic that I often come back to time and time again. It is such an interesting field and a key driver of global affairs. And if you are a returning podcast listener, thanks for keeping on listening. I have some great shows in the hopper for you. Bye.